Hello there, I'm Patrick Strofe, president of Rubicon M&A Insurance Services. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today, I'm joined by Brett Hickey, founder and CEO of Star Mountain Capital. Star Mountain is a specialized asset management firm focused exclusively on the U.S. lower middle market. They do this by investing debt and equity directly into established operating companies, making strategic investments into fund managers, and purchasing secondary fund positions. Star Mountain Capital was once again recognized by Cranes and Pensions and Investments as a best place to work for the second consecutive year. And my guest, Brett, was named one of Axial's top 20 thought leaders for the lower middle market for 2020. Brett, it's great to have you here. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Patrick. My pleasure. Now, I guess people couldn't blame you, but I'm just wondering, after the track record you had, uh, were you a little sad to see 2020 end? (laughs) Good question. Uh, No, I think 2020 brought a lot of interesting learnings. And as with everything in life, it shows us the importance of agility, strategy, organization, and culture, uh, as well as insurance-related matters where your expertise comes in. And thankfully, um, being ready for challenges and ready for opportunities, we did as a business uh, thrive last year, and, and we're excited about 2021. But of course, a lot of challenges uh, for a lot of people, which were very heartfelt around, and we did a lot of support relating to with our charitable foundation. Brett, I don't mean to put pressure on you, but uh, before we get into Star Mountain Capital, you have a fantastic story. And it is reflective on not only yourself, but on the caliber of Star Mountain Capital. So again, I apologize, no pressure, but before we get into your firm, let's talk about you. How did you get to this point in your career? Not not as a crow flies, that's for sure. I, I often sit back and reflect. And I recently, as we were talking about, moved into a new house and you know, made me reflect upon um, where my life is now and where we're going and how I got here. And it's uh, it's been a real evolution and is pretty interesting. And one of the reasons that I like to sit on different boards like Harvard's alumni entrepreneurs and try to be helpful with our charitable foundation to inspire people that you don't need to have grown up in the community you want to land in. You don't need to have gone to all the best private schools and universities and so forth to get the best jobs. There are a lot of paths forward that largely relate to being strategic, having grit and tenacity and effort, really working hard. And if you do that, uh, I'm biased to think that a lot of people can achieve a lot of things. So with that as a little bit of preamble, uh, very quickly, I grew up in a small town in Northwestern Canada of approximately 10,000 people a bit of middle of nowhere, sort of halfway between um, you know, Vancouver and, and the U.S. border. And I unfortunately lost my mother to cancer at a young age, which was pretty formative to me on a number of fronts and how I think about life. I uh, was fortunate to have a father who was very involved in my life. He was a principal of the middle school at the time, quit that and became a teacher at the high school to be more involved in my life. So as an only child, having uh, lost my mother to cancer when I was six and she had diagnosed and fought it for two years when I was four. Um, you know, it really has made me think about community, culture, health. I'm very fortunate that a lot of people, uh, 
again, thankful to my father's engagement in the community. They really engaged with me. A lot of my extended family helped in the life I had. I did want to ultimately get out of that life, if you will, and move to live somewhere, A, warmer as a very simple threshold test, and B, where there would be other careers outside of lumber and you know forestry, mining, oil and gas is, is pretty, pretty prevalent for what's there. And you see the cycles of those industries, which led me to where I don't invest in those industries today. Um, I've lived and watched how cycles can be difficult and and it's hard to time that so we don't do it. But fast forwarding a little bit, I spent one year on the oil drilling rigs in northern Canada, which is how I ended up paying for college. I uh, initially when I was going to college in Calgary, Alberta. I was speed skating on the national speed skating training team with aspirations of going to the Olympics. I'd been fortunate to be a Canadian record holder and a gold medalist in speed skating when I was younger in Canada. thought it'd be a lot of fun to go to the Olympics. I feel fortunate that unlike other sports, speed skating, you know right up front, there's no money in it. So plan B, I didn't know exactly what it would be, but I knew I needed a plan B. And I figured that school would really be the door to that plan B. I unfortunately flipped my bicycle training on the velodrome in the summer and got injured and decided not to continue to pursue um, the Olympics from that capacity and then really switched the energy into business. And I, as I learned more about business and was in a bigger city in Calgary and an environment, I got very excited and very passionate about that. And this is now in the late 90s. And so I learned to code and built a little internet company and stuff like that, which was a lot of fun. Nothing overly financially successful, just interesting. And the innovation and passion of building, that was really my, my first taste of, and I loved that. I also really got inspired by finance and what you can build in your career and how much impact you can have and how interesting and dynamic it seemed. And I wanted to go to either New York or London to work in investment banking. I was fortunate enough to get into McGill University in Canada, which is one of the best launching pads out of Canada because it's a reasonably well-known international university and one of the, the top universities internationally and particularly in Canada. And I was lucky enough to get recruited from McGill to work for uh, Bulge Bracket Investment Bank at the time was the largest investment uh, bank or largest financial institution, I should say, pardon me, and the investment banking division within it at Citigroup, Solomon's Barney, and thought that covering asset managers would be really interesting, buying and selling asset managers, looking at different strategies, evaluating strategies, and really having a future strategic thought within the investment space that way. And so I moved to the U.S. about 20 years ago to do that. And then I left that to try to tie together the investment banking and the finance, which I really learned to love. And I did my undergraduate degree in both finance and accounting as well. So I, I love math. I was one of those guys that in school, I found somebody telling me whether my story was or wasn't good to be very subjective. And I wasn't as much of a fan of that subjectivity, whereas I loved math. So I loved calculus and I liked to go in and take an extra calculus classes within the engineering faculty and whatnot, because I liked the fact that you were either right or wrong and somebody couldn't subjectively tell you that. And maybe that's one of the reasons I like investing where one of the ways that we get judged is our returns and our performance and it's black and white. And that's, I guess, something I've, I've learned to like in my life. So getting to where we're at today, Patrick, I left investment banking to focus specifically on then just principal investing in the lower middle market in 2004, so at this juncture, we're about 17 years into my career investing in the U.S. lower middle market. I've made over 100 private equity and private credit investments, as well as over 20 
secondary and fund purchases all within the U.S. lower middle market. And the trends in the U.S. US lower middle market are both interesting and I feel it's a place that we can have an impact uh, from a culture community. You mentioned the awards that we've been uh, fortunate to have won. And I, of course, thankful for my team in helping us do that. But we also do invest very aggressively in culture, in team, in talent, in how we build our training programs, how we invest in ongoing training. We have a Star Mountain University, and we we really put a lot of effort into that. And I'm thankful for my team for putting that effort in. We also align interests with our entire team, where all of them own carried interest and share in the profits of our investing. So we have about 75 people in total now, including our operating partners in 20 cities across the US that are focused on nothing but finding high quality private businesses, figuring out how we can add value to them. And one of the other things that I wanted to build within Star Mountain was a flexible capital solution approach where we could sit down with business owners, get to know them, understand their personal desires, their businesses, challenges, and opportunities, and really come up with a game plan and the right type of capital for that, whether that's debt, whether that's equity, whether it's a combination, whether it's some hybrid security in between. Um, There are different types of capital and different needs for different businesses. And we really wanted to be a Blackstone or a KKR type of a player, but within the lower middle market where we have a full range of services and capabilities for business owners and for our investors within a marketplace where we target generating alpha from an investment perspective. And then for business owners, it feels good to be able to add value and really understand them and get to know them. And that's where it ties, I guess, my background of that entrepreneurialism, the small town community where you work as a community, you trust each other, you work together, and you really have that sense of community bringing that into the financial creativity and being able to really drive impact in what we do um, is something that I'm extremely excited about. And sitting here today as a 42-year-old, I'm, I'm extremely excited for the future because I think we've really just scratched the surface and how we can add value to different businesses across the country um, and for our investors. And that's, that's really exciting for, for us, Patrick. Well, and, and you, you've segued right into, uh, you know, my thoughts about, uh, you know, either the commitment to a lower middle market is that, you know, I think that as with everything, as you start doing investing, there are a number of investors, quite a few that the deals just keep getting bigger just from inertia. And then they just trend up that way. And there are organizations and there are executives like you that are committed to stay. No, we like this segment of the market. I mean, I, I would just think just logistically, there are a lot more of those companies out there. They're created every day. You have a bigger impact in, uh, with returns, uh, bigger opportunity on, on the smaller stuff than on the larger stuff. But I think the other thing that's important, and I think you get this too, is that this sector of the market, the lower middle market is underserved. There are so many of these organizations that are not as sophisticated. And a lot of times they're not accustomed to mergers and acquisitions or making that transition or taking that next step to get to the next level. And unfortunately, there are a lot of choices out there, but they're not aware of them and they can't distinguish one option from another. So they default and go to an institution. 
And they'll, unfortunately, when they go to the institution, they don't know any better, but the institutions don't have the bandwidth to meet their needs, to hold their hand, get them over. And so unfortunately, the institutions are not going to treat them, you know, very well. They're going to overcharge them and they're not going to deliver uh, on execution and so forth the way that, that the lower middle market really needs. And it's essential that there are organizations like Star Mountain Capital and you that have the passion and the commitment and, and you want to be there to serve that. And I like that because what you're doing is you're not just trying to, you know, objectively get a return. You want, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you want to come in and, and impact the culture. And you want to do that, not just for the culture of that organization, but the culture around the community, because you grew up in that kind of community. I mean, yeah. is that pretty consistent? Yeah, it is. And you, you touched on a number of things I think are, are really important. And one is that things I've learned, I've been lucky enough, Patrick, to be invested in and have different partners and people in my life that are incredibly dynamic, experienced, and successful. And that's really allowed me to have a rich learning environment. And I couldn't have been um, right enough when I grew up in a small town to say the smartest thing I can do knowing nothing about the finance or investment banking industry is get into that culture, get into that. And living in New York City for nearly 20 years, I've lived walking to my office the entire time. And the amount of effort I was able to put into that and the amount of learning from people has just been incredible. And some of the things that I've observed, and, and, and we all see this, or we have all have access to this data, including the utility curve of money. We all know that once you surpass your basic needs, the incremental utility or happiness you get from money is very low. And there's a lot of great professors from ours at, at Harvard and other that, that have written about this, and, and lots of good people, right, that have written about that. And you see a lot of people that are very wealthy and not happy and so on and so forth. And so I really took a step back, having lost my mother at a young age, and said, who am I? What matters to me? What do I stand for? What do I want to be a guiding light for my children around? What's the North Star? Star Mountain Capital is a name that I came up with. There is no Star Mountain. The star in the mountain is our North Star. What are our guiding lights? What do we stand for? Our ethics, our integrity, our humanity, and really staying focused on that at all times with the strength and stability of the mountain is really the idea behind building that. And I think that the impact when you lose somebody at a young age, it really makes you reflect on life and its fragility and how I built Star Mountain, where I have a very large executive team of extremely capable people. This is not a business built centric around me. This is a business that's a platform. It's not, you know, Brett Hickey Incorporated. This is Star Mountain Capital. 100% of my employees share in the carried interest and profits of our business. We are a 100% employee owned business, um, despite managing approximately $1.5 billion today. And I'm extremely proud of that. And I'll even say, you know, sharing just personally for you, Patrick, and your audience at my wedding, two of my partners at Star Mountain were two of the four best men in my wedding. You know, we have real relationships where I said, I want to wake up every day and have fun, um, stand for something, trust who I work with, enjoy who I work with, make an impact for lives of businesses and 
people that were really impacting their lives, not just for obviously our investors, but for the businesses that we're backing and we're supporting. That's their careers, you know, their livelihoods. And we take that very seriously. And it's fun. It really sense of purpose in life becomes critical. And so I've tried to have my North Stars and Guiding Lights very clear. And, you know, a couple other things that you mentioned, I think are important also, Patrick. One is being committed to something. In our case, we're committed to being the best investor in the U.S. lower middle market, which includes Canada as well, um, that we can be, right? We're here to wake up every day and say, how can we do a better job every day? The mantra of the Young Presidents Organization is lifelong learning. That's similar to Star Mountain. We're focused on creating value, driving value, constant improvement as a firm, and constant self-improvement. I'm sure as my wife can tell you, I have lots of room for improvement. And with all seriousness, I do. And we all do. And so we trademarked investing in the growth engine of America. We've trademarked collaborative ecosystem because we believe in that community or think of it as a small town community feeling where we all serve a purpose. We're all here to add value to each other, treat and respect each other the right way. And when you mentioned the M&A capabilities, one of the other things that we viewed as a clear uh, need in the market and a clear opportunity in some of the problems that Star Mountain is solving is how do you bring that large market expertise to small businesses? Right. Your Goldman Sachs's of the world aren't working with small businesses. If somebody is working with them, you're generally getting a very junior type of person. So at Star Mountain, um, my partner, Brian, who's the chairman of our firm, was the global head of M&A at Credit Suisse. He was also the president of the firm, uh, running an 18,000-person business. And he also ran their $100 billion global asset management business. And other partners of mine were divisional heads and partners running five, 600-person teams at Goldman Sachs, uh, UBS, to name just a few institutions, uh, running the leverage loan business as the heads of it at Merrill Lynch, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. So we really have come together as a team and said, we're all here to make money, but we care more. We care about more than just money. We care about investing our own capital, protecting our capital, We care about who we're working with, making a real impact. And so what we set out to do is to bring those large market expertise to these smaller businesses. And um, again, with the right culture, the right alignment and the right partnership and the right long-term investment, I had to invest a very substantial amount of money in building technology, opening up offshore data centers in India and places like that, that we opened over a decade ago so that we could really bring those large market resources, skills, capabilities, and knowledge into these businesses, which there's always more to do, but it really, um, you know, it really is exciting. And I couldn't agree more with everything you just said, Patrick. Okay. Well, let's put something into perspective for our audience, because this is you know, now 2021, but Star Mountain Capital, I, I apologize, opened in 2009, 2008? Yeah, 2009, I guess we officially formed, we sort of say 2010 is when we launched, so 11 years ago. Okay. So 11 years ago, ESG, environmental, social government, the, the, that, that culture, attention, and, and commitment and so forth. Companies weren't, weren't paying lip service to it back then because it wasn't on anybody's radar. I mean, actually, from California's perspective, it was still within California and the tech community. It was nice, and it, but it was still kind of remnants of a hippie type of, of perspective, okay? 
Now we come into there and everybody's talking ESG and there's this whole commitment. You were formed with this. So, I mean, this is in your DNA now. And I think that's that long view that you have, I think, is something that anybody in the lower middle market should really pay attention to. I also like to think, because I was going to ask, you know, what's special about what you're doing opposed to a lot of other companies. But the other observation I have is that, and I think this is essential, is that you are having institutional grade talent that is available in a boutique uh, delivery system. So you are, you know, a, a boutique, but not with the limitations of a boutique. You you have all, and it comes from the talent of, of the, the your team members, but you got, you know, A-list talent that's available there at not the A-list prices. So I think that that's striking. What other things are, is Star Mountain bringing to the table for the lower middle market? Yeah, it's a good question. It's you know one of the other things that's interesting, Patrick. Just to try to make this a more a bit more intimate, you know, for your audience and your group. And I think the more that we're all open and honest and authentic with each other, I think that's a good thing. And that's just always been who I am. If you ask any of my friends, the people that know me well, I don't certainly think I'm perfect by any means, but I really do care and I really do work hard and, and try hard. And I'm sure if you ask my colleagues, you know, what's one of the things you'd say is, is effort. And I guess whether it's working on the oil rigs or speed skating, right? Effort has been something that I've, I've always had as part of my core DNA. And it's important in the lower middle market. I tell people when they come work for us, it's exciting, it's fun, but you've got to be willing to put in the effort. These businesses need help to analyze them the right way, to find them the right way. The information doesn't come packaged up in a boat. You've got to be willing to put in the elbow grease put in the effort and work with these companies actively to help be a strategic capital partner to them. It's fun. It's exciting. It's financially rewarding, but you have to put in the effort into it. Back to your point around um, the environmental, social, and governance within ESG, which people often also call impact and impact investing. I think part of it is when you have a parent's my, my mother used to work for IBM and it was really tough for her with the family because back in those days, it was really challenging for women to have strong careers and be a mother. Yeah. And so that matters a lot to me. And so I think that COVID is going to have people allow for better work-life balances that I actually believe will increase productivity. I know at Star Mountain, I believe it has. It's, it's you know, there are certain things that are less efficient, but I think on balance, our productivity has increased. We've invested aggressively in our team, building home offices, building the right support, the right technology, the right equipment for them to have full throttle environments. And it surprises me when I talk to some people that are like, no, why would I, that's people's homes. Why would I invest in it? I'm like, well, you invest in an office space for them. Why, Why wouldn't you invest in your human talent if that's your biggest asset, which certainly for our business it is. But I think the IBM dynamic, um, and this is nothing negative about IBM, this is just all large corporations back 30 years ago, but being able to support something and help impact what I know impacted my mother is something that makes me feel good in a way that I'm trying to give back. And I think it's something also from having a father as a school teacher, you're focused on educating, giving back to the community, being very involved in the community, which, which my dad still is to this day. And that's always been something I'm very proud of. I've really tried hard to keep that with me as part of our life and to build a different type of finance firm that is really engaged on 
these matters. And I try to be very forthright about it because it's not for everybody, right? If you don't care about these things and you just say, my simple goal is to try to make the most money I possibly can with my career, then you shouldn't come here because we want people to care about our investors, care about the companies they invest in, care about our team, and are willing to not always put themselves first, but put as our fiduciary obligation, our investors, our team, our portfolio companies to think about them. Now, as it turns out, I think actually this approach on ESG and culture and team, I actually do believe it also will actually provide the highest likelihood of the type of financial outcome that people want. And there's starting to be more and more data behind that. But investing in culture, investing in community, investing in your team, I think, for example, the fact that I've chosen to give up equity will make my equity worth more and will help me, therefore, be worth more in the whole by giving something away and aligning interests with my team that way. So I think that's something I know different universities study a lot around that. I think there's more and more data, but I think doing the right thing pays off long-term when you probability weight it. What we're really focused on is a high probability of your desired outcome. And I think that if you take that approach in life, and when I think about our children and how I'm trying to raise them, I don't care what they end up being worth, but I do care that they're good people, that live a good life, that mitigate risks in life, that are happy, positive, have good friendships, a good career. I care way more about that. So I want to give my children and our business the highest probability of the desired outcome possible. There are, as we've mentioned before, lots of options out there, lots of firms, and there are lots of target companies. And you you set the table really well on the subjective criteria that you're looking for and the subjective items that you you plan to deploy and so forth. Let's get a little bit objective for for our, our clients and our prospective uh, audience members out there. And you know, what is a profile criteria for an ideal uh, target company for you? Okay, where where what is Star Mountain look capital looking for? Great, great question. Thank you for asking, Patrick. The we're looking for business owners that want to do something else with their business, whether they want to sell their business, whether they want to make an acquisition, whether they want just strategic capital to help grow a partner to say, hey, how do I frame out the world? What do I take my business to? And then we have different types of capital available, different types of debt, different types of equity um, to help grow with them. So we look for businesses that generally have at least 15 million of annual revenue, we're not experts at startups, so we don't invest in them. We're not experts in real estate. We don't invest in it. We're not experts in oil and gas. We don't invest in it. And I remember that's one thing I think that's key that one of my professors had told me is that if you want to be great at something, you have to know what you're not great at because you can't be great at everything. So there are certain sectors and certain types of companies that we are not the best solution for. Um, so carving those out, the other thing I would say is that generally, if you're over 30 million of annual EBITDA, there are probably businesses that are better positioned to focus on you and where you're going at your next phase. So what we're really experts at is taking a business from 20 million of revenue to 200 million of revenue or from 5 million of EBITDA to 20 million of EBITDA, things of that nature, finding strategic acquisitions 
analyzing them, negotiating, structuring the investment structure with them, the earnouts and all that, integrating tech, talent, systems, financing it, providing the capital, and then helping those businesses really think about the future strategically and how they're structured as well as add-on acquisitions. So for example, in the downturn, we were ready, we were geared up, we viewed a downturn was coming. And I actually think there's a reasonable likelihood another one is coming because a lot of things that we worried about pre-pandemic, like valuation bubbles, Mm -hmm. they're higher than they were pre-pandemic. So I would caution people to think that, oh, phew, we just got out of 08. Now it's going to be another 10-year bull market. A lot of the black swans that were flying around have perhaps been better fed recently. And um, maybe that means they can fall harder and and from further, um, to use the black swan analogy. But I think that being ready to find acquisitions. So for example, we helped one of our portfolio companies acquire a business out of bankruptcy that will hopefully be extremely valuable for it. We helped another business spin off a subsidiary as a wholly owned subsidiary because that subsidiary really trades as a revenue multiple versus EBITDA multiple. And can perhaps it's a telehealth business that could really be worth a tremendous amount and how to, how to take that business to the next level. Similar to if you're a big company that can afford to hire the best talent at Goldman Sachs and a Boehner and McKinsey consultant, that type of strategic advice is really what we're bringing to the companies. And, you know, we're, we're looking for high quality people that are looking for, you know, good capital partners and people to work with. And you look, we're, we're open for business. We invested in about 27 companies last year. Uh, This year we've continued to grow, open new offices. We have six offices and 20 different places. We have at least one person in across the country. So we're, we're delighted to talk to people that generally speaking have between 15 million of revenue and 30 million of EBITDA and our North American based businesses um, is kind of our market segment in the world that we're built to optimize value with. Yeah. Well, one of the things that just came through on that in terms of the the size and the other things you talked about, and it underlines and supports a, a philosophy I have about mergers and acquisitions. And it's for the outsiders, people hear the news about an M&A transaction, and it's usually the, the, the very large ones that are in, in Wall Street Journal, that it's company A buying company B. And mergers and acquisitions for us is not that. It is a group of people choosing to partner with another group of people. So it is a, you can't get the human element removed from that. You have to have that. And in an ideal situation is one plus one equals six. And it's it's that bridge that is key out there. And it, it comes really hard and fast, particularly with lower middle market, where you've got owner founders that are selling their baby and looking for the next step. And you've got a willing partner there where their attitude is, you know, w- with Star Mountain, we want to help. We, we want to you know, we are, it's in our interest that your interests are also met and it goes forward. And I think that that works out really well. What I'm very- yeah, and, and one of, one of the other things I would just add on to that, Patrick, one of the things I didn't like doing early on in my career is having a much more limited type of capital where I really had to sell my relationships on, Hey, here's the right type of capital for you, whether that's a, a senior loan or, or private equity buyout. So one of the things that we built at Star Mountain is this we have different funds and different pockets of capital with different mandates associated, which allows us to interface with businesses, 
with private equity fund managers, with independent sponsors, with intermediaries as really an open architecture platform to say, what are you looking for? What do you need? Let's talk about it and let's come up with the right customized solution together for you. And now I love that because I do business with so many different friends of mine and I'm not selling them on anything. I'm not trying to stuff their desires into something else because that's what I happen to have available. And so whether they're smaller private equity funds, um, we also have our secondary fund capital so we can get strategic with them or we can buy an LP interest providing early liquidity to add value to their investors so that their investors can say, oh, that's great. I can be more liquid when I invest in XYZ's fund, give them new capital for their next fund give them new capital to help fund other deals. Same with independent sponsors and people launching other funds. We're often really strategic with them because we understand the lower middle market. We understand the challenges. We understand the needs. And so we've built a platform to really provide a lot of flexibility in in trying to add value to as many people as possible. Well, one other element that comes in, this is what I'm very excited about now for the lower middle market, is that, I mean, these deals aren't done in a vacuum, okay? There is, there is all this uh, wonderful stuff where we're going to come together, we're going to combine our efforts and, and, and move forward to a greater future. However, you can't ignore there is risk. And what sellers come to realize as they go through the whole process is that post-closing, that individual seller or group of sellers personally is personally liable to their buyer partners if post-closing the buyer suffers a financial loss due to a breach of the seller reps. And it isn't until they start negotiating the purchase and sale agreement, you get to the indemnification discussions. And then all of a sudden, wait a minute, I might have to pay you back for something that I don't know about. And, and now you've got the fear of the unknown out there. And, and initially they start talking about, I've I, been in a, a number of these situations where we have nothing to fear. We know of nothing out there, but then they don't have a corporate veil to fall behind. They don't have a company to fall behind because post-closing there is no company. And so all of a sudden, you know, risk becomes very real when it's your dollars or, or your house at risk. And that creates tension, particularly for people that are new to M&A, and that's everybody in the lower market, most likely. This is their first and only sale in a lot of cases. So there's a lot of fear there. Uh, I'm very proud of the fact that the insurance industry has come in with a product called Rep and Warranty Insurance that originally was reserved for the $100 million plus transaction level deals, where they take that indemnity obligation away from the seller and they move it over to an insurance carrier so that if the buyer suffers a, a, a financial loss, instead of pursuing the seller, they go right to the insurance company, the insurance company pays the loss. And I mean, it is an elegant, elegant way. It removes a lot of tension because risk is transferred and it really helps that owner and founder of those entrepreneurs exit cleanly without the worry that some you know call in the middle of the night is going to come in and something they never thought about came in. Um, the development in the last two years, it was interrupted just because of COVID, is that the insurance industry has become mature. And now with competition, there are more insurance companies coming and they are now targeting lower middle market deals with transaction values under $20 million. Those, those types of deals are now eligible for insurance. In the past, they weren't. And so it's great now that 
if you're there to serve that lower middle market, here's one more tool that removes the biggest, toughest part of that transition. And that's uh, getting that risk taken away from, from the deal parties because that that's the one that comes to attentions and so forth. So we enjoy how this has gone. We've seen the credibility of it over the time, but you know, you can't listen to me talking about it. I, it's more, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested really in, in your opinion, which, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. Share with me any experience you guys have had at Starbound Capital with rep and warranty insurance. Yeah, it's great. Uh, you, you mentioned something that I think a lot of people underappreciate the importance of, Patrick, which is the friction and making things easier and how to do business. So, rarely in life is something a one and done and and the relationship never matters again. So whenever you can do things to reduce risk and reduce friction, um, depending on the cost of it, of course, some capacity, but I generally think is well worth it. So for different types of insurance, um, I think it's very valuable to help get deals done, A, where you can transfer that risk, as you say, to an insurance company. It takes worries off the table for both sides. It allows for a better relationship between those two parties because the more time you spend negotiating tough things, the more you're hurting a relationship. So if you're buying a business from somebody and you want them to be speaking well of you afterwards to clients, community, employees, whether they do or don't have an economic interest remaining, you want them to say, you know what, these are good people. I liked doing business with them. That's always going to be in your best interest in life. So if you can reduce the amount of friction you create and get an deal done, A, B, if you can increase, therefore, the probability of getting a deal done, I think that's great. And then the sleeping well at night from either party's perspective, knowing that you have that taken care of with a good insurance company and having you know, the right type of person really understands the detailed minutia of these insurance policies is crucial because they're complex and you need the right people that really get it like yourself that specialize in it, just like we specialize in what we do, you specializing in what you do. I, I couldn't speak highly enough for how important it is. We sometimes have people that hire their real estate lawyers to represent them and stuff on complex matters. And it's just, it's just so penny wise, pound foolish, as the Brits would say. And you know, the right people doing the right thing is important. And, and insurance, um, from my perspective, I mean, I'm a big user of insurance on a lot of fronts, whether it's DNO policies, ENO policies, different life insurance related things. I think there's um, transactions. It, it's, uh, it's very important. And I think, as you pointed out, the evolution of it, Patrick, is ongoing. And there's things that I still want to continue to learn more about and we'll look forward to speaking with you and your team further about, but I think that it, it helps you get deals done. It helps you have better relationships. It helps you sleep better at night. And all of those things I think are worth something. And what I've generally observed is that the cost of insurance relative to the tail risk they can solve for is often really valuable. And you have some people in life that are really skeptical that say, well, yeah, but the insurance company, they're making money. They're really smart. Yes, but they're doing a probability weighted analysis. So for an insurance company, they can take a, a dis 
version of risk and say, on average, what's the probability this is going to happen? Whereas for you as an individual, if that tail risk is only a maybe a two and a half percent likelihood or five percent, whatever it might be, maybe that's reasonably small. But what if it does happen? Do you want to take that risk in life? Is that something worth you living with and taking? And so I personally think that removing big impact tail risks just to live a better life as a seller is extremely valuable. And as a buyer of businesses, I think mitigating those tail risks as well. So that, as I said earlier, having the highest probability possible of your desired outcome. And maybe that means because of the cost of the insurance, you get a little bit less potential upside, but you get a higher probability of a desired outcome. And for me in life, that creates a lot of peacefulness, a lot of happiness. I think our investors appreciate it. I think our portfolio companies appreciate it. I just think it's a better way to live life philosophically, personally, and professionally as a business. So highly encourage people to learn more about it, understand where it's at, the evolutions, as you've mentioned with the Patrick. Um, hopefully that's helpful. Brett, as we're talking today, we, we're just uh, in the new year, got a new administration. Uh, COVID is... I don't know if we are at the end of the beginning of COVID or the beginning of the end of COVID. Time will, time will tell. But, you know, as we sit here today looking forward and you're an axial thought leader, you know, what trends do you see going forward? Be they macro with M&A or just with Star Mountain Capital or lower middle market? What do you see out there? Good question. Here are a few trends. Some of them I will try to polish my crystal ball for and uh, have some guesstimate into the future. Um, I love forcing people and some people don't like it. I say, well, what's the, what's the probability you think of that? Or where do you grade it from a one to 10? And they're like, well, I don't know. You know, they give these sort of qualitative responses. And as I mentioned earlier with how I loved calculus and less liked English literature, um, just due to my own probably lack of competency in the English literature relative to mathematics, I like certainty but I like to force people to quantify their views on things. So I'll, I'll give a little bit of views of some of my thoughts of the future um, and then certain things that are also much more definitive and are going to happen. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the definitive trends. There have been so many things going on between COVID, politics. I think people have forgotten about some major, massive, definitive trends. One is the aging demographic. Our population is aging. That creates a tremendous amount of both challenges and opportunities that people really need to think about. How does that impact the future of industries, of businesses? Because the impacts are large and they are systematic. So where that benefits Star Mountain is that you have more privately owned businesses and business owners that are saying, I want to transact. The uh, second thing that we know definitively is the amount of debt in the economy at a, uh, generally speaking, at a, sort, a certainly governmental level is big and it's growing, right? So I think people need to be just mindful of understanding that. I know in California, you have people that are concerned and moving to Texas is, the, I think, the biggest probably outflow, but people are thinking about taxes and they're thinking about what's the economy going to look like? Does there come breaking points where the economy can't invest more into X because it has to make 
difficult trade-off decisions? Those are questions that are important. Now, today with rates really low, they can finance high levels of debt. But if rates do increase, it could get very difficult. And I think that is a trend. Um, It's more difficult to forecast how that can impact things, but it is a definitive trend that I think people should be thinking about. I know we are thinking about it and how that can, again, impact the economy, industries, taxes, things that are systematic. Uh, There's a new, um, obviously, a new party um, in charge. How does Biden think about things? What is he likely or less likely to do? Some of that is more difficult, so I won't try to predict that, but it is something that is worth thinking about and how that, again, may have positives or negatives in industries and sectors and so forth. But the one thing that we always know about the government is there's a unknown, there's a volatility aspect related to it that you just can't control what they're going to do. And sometimes it's hard to anticipate what they're going to do and be able to do, right? So there's what they may try to do and what's the, what can they actually get past and how does that impact things? But I think that's worth really thinking about how much is government involved in an industry or business that you own and run or that you're looking to invest in in whatever capacity that might be. I think it's really important to think through those things because it's everyone's a little bit different in the probability weighting of it. And we're big fans at Star Mountain of probability weighting future outcomes. You're never going to be exactly right, but you you do a probability weighted analysis and say, if this happens, then what? And you, you kind of forecast a few moves out and play chess, if you will, to think about how to deal with things. As we think about some of the other things that are definitely there, but really hard to understand the impacts of valuations, public market valuations are extremely high relative to historical measures. Some people believe they're fair or not fair. I won't comment on, but they're high. The amount of liquidity in the market right now is very high. The additional government stimulus money that's coming in is really high, which is correlated to the debt, but does, of course, help the economy from just more liquidity, more spend. Other things that are happening that people may less know about is that costs of goods where manufacturing can be challenged right now in some places and demand for certain things high, costs of certain goods are increasing. How is that going to impact the future? How does that impact potential inflation risks? People need to think about that. One of the other challenges that we see out there is from a business perspective, how do they think about their future planning knowing some of these things. How do you think about talent replacement? One of the things that yeah. businesses, I think, under-evaluate is the org chart. And yes, I know that we have a president currently and a former president that are in their mid-70s, but the probability of health issues occurring as you age increases, right? It's just factual. And this isn't a comment on any political person is going to happen to you and I as well. It's just a fact. So when you look at businesses, understand the org chart, you may have like, how important is this person? And do they have succession planning really well set up or not? Because the aging demographic that we have is more than it has ever been. So the other last thing I'll say, Patrick, is that the pace of evolution, the pace of change continues to increase. And I think 
COVID has exponentially increased that. So one of the other things that I was um, going to mention is that the weighting of the large tech companies and just big companies, period, irrespective of the type, in indexes. So a lot of people used to think of, well, the S&P 500 is a really balanced, diversified index. Not so much anymore. Mm. Now the weightings to these trillion-dollar companies, which we've never had before in history, is huge. So how do you think about how diversified you really are or aren't in something that you used to be very diversified in? Now you're very heavily concentrated in a few companies with their idiosyncratic risks that any company has, as well as sectors and so forth. And hopefully some of that provokes some thought. I know it doesn't give any definitive answers, but that's the reality of life. No definitive answers, but there are things to be focused on. And and I think this is a good market to look for both challenges and opportunities because it's, uh, I think the the market is, is riddled with them right now, maybe more than ever. I think you've outlined a whole variety of things, both challenges and opportunities. And I think that's the successful uh, leaders out there do that is they look for both. And, you know, they they make decisions straightforward uh, with all the information. I can't tell you how much we appreciate having just all this, uh, you know, perspective that you provided and what you're doing with the lower middle market and, and so forth. And I think it's just, like I said, you've got a compelling story and um, I'm, I'm sure everybody that's listening is probably going to want to get a little bit more. How can our audience members find you, Brett? Yeah, thanks, Patrick. The best way from an email address perspective is info at starmountaincapital.com. That'll come in and then we can route you to the right people, including myself, if that's what's needed. Uh, Second is we have our YouTube channel, um, youtube.com forward slash C forward slash starmountaincapital that has a lot of good content. Our LinkedIn profile, we keep a lot of good information on or update in a world when um, physical events, which I can't wait for them to come back, uh, do come back again. We host a lot of events, historically close to 100 uh, a year all across the country, trying to make them fun and interesting and stuff like that, and giving people the opportunity to get together and collaborate. And that builds relationships for us. And it's part of us kind of giving back and being engaged in the community, just like you do, Patrick, with this, right? You're not charging people for this. It's, it's the more we all collaborate, share information, share resources, we all benefit. I'm thinking I'm going to just uh, buttress that with uh, recommending people visit starmountaincapital.com. You've got a, a news tab there. You probably have one of the most, uh, one of the more active updated news of you've got a lot of great content you've got a lot of great uh information out there so i think that's that's something that you have focused on with communications and i think that's essential so brett hickey star mountain capital thank you very much for joining us today and uh just hope your 2021 eclipses a a real productive 2020 here here thanks patrick be well everybody 